Hi there. This week on Papa PhD, I'm talking with Kalen Kovac Orr about his journey from the wet lab to a career in data science. During our conversation, we talked about Kalen's academic journey, about what skills you should focus on as a candidate today if you're interested in data science, about the specifics of the interviewing process for data scientist positions, and Kalen shared specific advice based on his experience as a PhD in the corporate space. So be ready to take notes. Moving up the corporate ladder is not about who's the best. It's just not. It's about who can help the most people, right? So you don't get that manager, directorship, or VP position because you're the smartest person in the room. You get it because you will be able to help the people who report into you and the people that you report to the most in that position. And so there's almost no room for ego. Welcome to Papa PhD with David Mendez, the podcast where we explore careers and life after grad school with guests who have walked the road less traveled and have unique stories to tell about how they made their place in a world of constantly evolving rules. Get ready to go off the beaten path and hop on for an exciting new episode of Papa PhD. This week on the show, I have with me Kalen Kovac Orr. Kalen earned his PhD in theoretical biology from McGill University in 2015. His thesis focused on predator prey interactions. He started in industry as a data scientist and currently heads a data science and engineering team for Verisk Analytics. Kalen and his team continue to work on solving novel problems such as getting regulatory approval for the U.S.'s first machine learning-based insurance pricing product. This is from predator-prey interactions to data science. I really want to hear this story. Welcome to Papa PhD, Kalen. Thank you. It's uh, great to be here. So, Kalen, um, first I'd like to say that uh, I, I, I found you through this great program at McGill, uh, which is called Trace McGill, uh, and which is a program uh, which has it, ha it has existed for a few years now, and uh, the objective of the program is to um, get back in touch with PhDs, so with McGill graduates, and uh, and uh, interview them also, kind of like here, like we're doing today, to kind of get a, a narrative of what their journey was, and uh, and to help, I'd say, uh, McGill understand, you know, how. Where people are are going after the PhD and uh, and uh, how they've navigated those years after. So I'm really really grateful that through contact with this program, I was able to find you and to have you here today to to tell us me and the listeners about your your story. You know, and I, again, I really find that uh, you know when you see what you did in your PhD and what you're doing now, people might think there's no connection there. But uh, I think we're going to answer that that question during our conversation. <laughs> yeah, I, definitely. Um, you know, it's, it's funny. Um, when I think about what my life was like during my PhD and, and what my life was like as a data scientist and an individual contributor, I'm, the day-to-day -day was nearly identical. So all day is write code and analyze data. I'm, mm -hmm. you know, looking at things in R and Python, uh, Stack Overflow and, and Googling problems uh, and, and reading. I'm, the big picture 
change. So the questions that I was answering, uh, the the product or like the life cycle of projects changes, uh, the type of accountability changes, but you know, day to day, it's extremely similar. And I think it's something that is probably um, maybe intimidating for a lot of uh, grad students thinking about the workforce. Um, you know, it's it's not like you come in into some like crazy high pressure scenario that's more than a PhD, unless maybe you're working at like I don't know Google's. Uh, Premier R and D lab, or maybe like Eagle Labs, or something. Uh, you know, uh, yeah, it's it's there's a there's a smooth transition there for a lot of people, mm-hmm. especially coming from STEM PhDs. If you're going into a related field and industry, mm-hmm. so actually, this is a good a good, a good uh, bridge to ask you this question, which is just share with with the listeners what was your your path. You know. How how you got to maybe to to decide to go and and pursue a PhD, uh, what subject that was on, and then how what were the next steps up to the point where you you found kind of that okay I'm going to go into data science and then uh, and then up to today what was that journey like? Um, yeah, so um, I think my first year of undergrad I was I was really lost I didn't know what I wanted to do and I, I knew a lot of things that I didn't want to do. Uh, but didn't really have any direction. And I, I found ecology as a, a, a major uh, at my undergrad university. Um, and, the, you know, the idea of spending my life working on nature, outside in nature, uh, it was incredibly appealing to me as a 19-year-old. And so I, I went down that pathway. And there were a couple of, of great professors at Rutgers who encouraged me to look at uh, PhD programs and to, to get into the research side, uh, you know, after talking with me. So there's uh, Barbara Goff and Tim Casey and Peter Morin um, that really helped kind of forge my path. So, you know, noticing that, you know, I'm pretty good at, at math and analytics, there'd be a, an opportunity mm. there. Um, and so, in undergrad, I, I did my, my major in ecology and evolution and then uh, a minor or you know, 19 credits in geographic information service systems um, and uh, something else in there. But that was a long time ago now. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and, and then I went to McGill with the intention of, of doing 50% of my PhD uh, in a wet lab, uh, microbial okay. evolutionary experiments uh, that were going to be paired with uh, theoretical uh, models, uh, exploration of those systems. So, you know, uh, instead of just having like a model of predator-prey interactions, we had these model organisms, uh, rotifers and, and zooplankton, where we could actually test the models. Uh, and mm-hmm. after, I don't know, a year or two of trying in the wet lab to get any experiments to work and just seeing them all fail and be contaminated, I... Um, <laughs> I, I turned my attention more towards the theoretical side and, and that worked really well. I, apparently I'm a lot better with computers than I am with living organisms. So, um, okay. you know, we, uh, I talked to my committee, I talked to my advisor about, uh, you know, maybe moving away from the experiments and, and that was a challenge. Uh, there was a lot of, uh, discussion about not doing these experiments and how the committee wanted them. They thought it would make everything a lot more powerful and a, a lot more meaningful and, and while I do agree, I, I think um, I probably never would have gotten the experiments completed, at least not to the scale I, I'd been envisioning. Um, so that, 
that took me forward the next couple of years, uh, working on different aspects of predator-prey interactions, mostly around uh, within species variation and how that can stabilize whole ecological communities that are facing uh, harsh environmental conditions, so climate change or pollution. Um, and I think partially um, there were a lot of different aspects of of what was going on when I was thinking about leaving academia. So we had, um, you know, the political climate there it was right around that time that they cut all the funding for ecological mm -hmm. research in Canada. Uh, the U.S. isn't much better, uh, if not much worse. Um, and, um, you know, just seeing a lot of the postdocs at McGill struggling to find professorships that they wanted uh, and the amount of anxiety you could see on people who were two, four, six years out of a PhD uh, was really quite shocking to me. You know, I had been expecting a PhD to kind of be a great springboard into a professorship and, you know, get that freedom. And then you kind of get to see the sausage made and it's a little less appealing. Um, mm. And so probably around four to five years into my PhD, I was thinking about industry and I, I still very distinctly remember this day. I, I had, I'd spent a couple months at the university of Potsdam uh, in Germany, okay. Germany, okay. Um, collaborating with some professors there. And uh, my advisor, Gregor Fussman took his sabbatical at, at Potsdam. Uh, so I, I went to go, uh, you know, learn from him and, and, and connect with some of his connections and, I remember this day where we were talking um, and it was a nice day in the spring. It was, it was really warm outside and we we're having a beer and I asked him like, if he had to do it all over again, you know, given today's climate, do you think he would? Mm -hmm. And uh, his answer was, he wasn't sure. It's a, it's a tall, <laughs> tall order when you're talking about somebody who's currently the chair. Um, and I think that was probably the moment when I decided that I, I didn't want to stick it out and try to stay in academia. Um, and I, I appreciate his candidness. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's a, it's a tough road. Yeah. And then I'm sure when someone like that says something like that, it gives you pause and you're like, okay, so maybe I should think things over and, and not think that there's only one way to do things. Um, and so this this moment it was kind of a turning moment where you you started maybe looking at things differently was there uh and you talked about uh you know connecting with with his network was there part of this network that was uh that was related somehow to industry uh or or did you have to go and 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 try to meet new people how how did you go about kind of putting your foot a little bit through the door into this new domain and into this new space um, yeah, that's a great question. So, uh, Gregor's network wasn't really tied to industry in any way. There were, were some government, uh, research people in there, but, um, definitely nothing like what I do now. Um, truthfully, I didn't start thinking about, uh, or didn't start making any moves to try to make connections to industry until very late, uh, probably mm -hmm. after I'd submitted my initial draft of my thesis. So, uh, seven or eight months before uh, final, you know, getting my diploma. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, the, there were a couple things I did try. Um, 
you know, those industry events that are essentially recruiting spaces. I, I found mm-hmm. those really intimidating. Uh, a lot of okay. the people there are, you know, especially for data science, they're very, very bright. Um, and they, you know, they've been getting PhDs in machine learning. So not only are they, you know, maybe at the same or at a higher level than you are in terms of um, education or uh, whatever, but they, they're really specifically focused on the field. Um, and so it can be intimidating. Um, but that's not necessarily the worst thing, right? So there, hmm. you know, a lot of these industry events aren't necessarily created so that only the top two or 3% of candidates get jobs and hired. Um, there are, you know, every company needs data scientists right now. Uh, and if you're only comparing yourself to the people who get offers from Google, you're probably going to feel mm. uh, not just imposter syndrome, but uh, <laughs> all sorts of, of terrible feelings. It's it's funny because I was going to mention imposter syndrome, uh, but but uh, definitely actually I I can even think in think about it in a different way. I, I would say some of these companies, and you're talking about Google and and other companies who are you know doing crazy stuff. I imagine they actually they're actually probably interested in that person who brings a different profile into the pool of candidates and who might maybe bring new ideas, a new point of view versus uh having learned that you know that specific curriculum that everyone knows fits so for listeners out there don't don't yeah the imposter syndrome is going to hit if uh if you uh, have a profile that's that fits to a certain uh extent go for it you know make your case and uh, and you know you don't compare yourself directly just see, you know, comparing CVs with someone else because it it might prevent you from getting a really really cool opportunity uh, eventually. Yeah, and and I would maybe just tack on a, a few points there too. You know, it, we we tend to think about just those incredible companies like Facebook and Google, Apple, um, and there's so much good work to be done and so many interesting projects and problems at all sorts of other companies um, where you're still doing research and you're still, uh, you know, making an impact in the company uh, without being, you know, one in a a million candidate uh, kind of situation. Uh, So, you know, the way I would probably contextualize it is when we think about conservation efforts in biology, you know, everybody thinks about elephants and whales and these giant <laughs> megafauna. Uh, and those are really important, uh, you know, uh, but there are also a lot of species out there that could use some attention that are, you know, not as traditionally appealing, you know, your, mm-hmm. your insects and your uh, microbes and they can make yes. a big difference. My, in micro mammals and etc. Yeah, 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 for sure. Exactly. <laughs> I love that example. It's, it's a really, really good one. Um, and yeah, I've, I've had uh, someone on, on the show working for a bank and uh, who, you know, who comes from the life sciences and is now a data scientist. Someone also, uh, in the retail domain, yeah, uh, you know, so for sure, like uh, companies out there are, need these these skills, and, and well, now I think I've, the, the the term data scientist ring, you know, it, it rings. How can I say is is something that we now used to to hearing, but go back go back five years, ten years, it was fairly new, right? But but still, you know, at all in all different spaces, all different domains. If the, you have that set of skills, and I'd like to talk about that later, there's you know there's opportunity now to go and 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 
can really help uh, an organization, a company uh, with with those skills today because you know everyone is getting online and now everyone is working from home and and you know every there's a lot of uh, places or, or ecosystems where there's data being collected that needs to be worked, treated, analyzed uh, at, at different levels of society and of, of the of uh, of um, you know of, of industry so for sure uh, and but but as i was saying what what is this set of skills that that is uh, because now you've you've been working in that domain for a while for people out there who might be you know looking at, at okay in 2 years or in a year i i'm going to finish and i want to go i i might be interested in going into data science what is you know what should they how should they prepare uh you know what what type of resources should they try to start getting uh getting uh, acquainted with etc cetera, etc cetera. Uh, yeah, that's a great question uh and the reason i was smiling is cuz we uh i just finished out hiring a few more people so when i took over okay. the data engineering <laughs> team two years ago we had uh two people on the team including me uh and now we've grown to 14 uh, across three different offices in two different countries um, and so, wow. uh, yeah, a lot of hiring, uh, <laughs> has, has happened. Um, you know, the, the major things I'm looking for from PhDs are, uh, you know, your capabilities to solve problems. Uh, most data science problems now are actually not that hard to code. Uh, there've been a lot of people who've done a lot of work on open source packages and, you know, 10 years ago, somebody who could create a neural net model probably had to write the code for the neural net. Now mm -hmm. there's hundreds, if not thousands of packages out there. Everything's kind of pre-configured. Um, so the actual running of a model isn't that difficult. It's uh, maybe knowing which model to use, uh, knowing uh, how to design your experiments, how to design your tests, how to design your data. Uh, that can really make the big difference between uh, something that works really well and something that's okay. Um, mm -hmm. And that's where you want to be as a PhD, is somebody who can do something really well. Because honestly, I can teach most undergrads from a comp sci background how to run a neural net in an afternoon, maybe a week. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, so you don't want to be competing with them. Who can, they can just do it okay at that point. You want to be the person who can bring that that next level of value, I think. Mm -hmm. um, so um problem solving uh capabilities um autonomy uh one of the, the things we look for whenever we hire a phd is is this person going to add value even if they're coming right out of school there you know there's going to be some training involved um but like w you know it might be the difference between somebody who can come in and figure things out versus somebody who's going to be reliant on their manager to you know solve all their problems um and design all their work for them and, and that kind of thing. And that, that's why we want to, you know, hire PhDs is that they can do that and, and add their own value. Um, mm. In terms of, of skills, I, uh, you know, there's in academia, there's a strong push for programming languages around MATLAB. Uh, R in industry, you know, it does vary by specific industry, but, you know, I, I find Python uh, to be the most appealing in candidates. Um, it's the broadest language. It can interface with a lot of different things, and it, it works well at scale on you know, big, okay. big infrastructure, big data. Um, definitely, uh, you know, 
moving away from things like SAS and MATLAB. Um, you know, they're not, if you know them, I wouldn't keep them off the resume, but I wouldn't lead with them either. Um, and then uh, one thing that I think I overlooked, but when I was a candidate, but now always mm-hmm. check for are GitLabs and repositories, any type of public um, record of writing code, I think can, can be really convincing, especially, you know, if you're trying to say that you, you know, you've got two or three years of Python experience, if you can just show that you made uh, updates or commits along the way, um, that can go a really long way to, to proving that so you don't have to convince anybody uh, that you have your skills. Kind of a portfolio, but on that on that on that side of, of programming, right? Yeah, exactly. And one thing I do see happen is that right when candidate when graduate students are about to graduate, they they rush and they they put together a GitLab, <laughs> and you can track it, right? You can see when they made their updates, and you'll see some rush in April <laughs> uh, of that year. There's like 30 commits and uh, 25 in May, and then they're applying for jobs in June, and it's you know it's not as convincing <laughs> as somebody who can go back and show something yeah. from 2018 or something something that's that's consistently been been he's they've been consistently working on and and improving okay that that's that's really uh, good advice now uh, thinking of, of you when you were you, you were you were just mentioning uh, you know when when i was uh uh when i was you know, interviewing for these jobs i i didn't uh, think of this i didn't think of that um and one thing that really interests me and that for me uh, would, would have been or, or, you know, at the end of the PhD, a source of stress is the whole interviewing process. Um, and I'd really like to know, because now you've mentioned you're, you take care of, of hiring and of looking at, at people's CVs. I don't know if you, if you interview uh, in person, but um, looking at the experience you had when you uh, interviewed for, for your first uh, job in, in this space, uh can you also identify some things you would have done differently and and maybe uh you know give some some uh tips and tricks to the to the the, the younger you yeah um definitely um so i think there are a few things to keep in mind um so for instance anytime i open up a requisition i uh, you know on LinkedIn or Monster or anything, you know, put it out there. We'll we'll get upwards of two thousand applicants, um, okay. and so we, we you know we go in order of when they applied and then if somebody internally recommends them or if we know them somehow, um, and you know it can be really disheartening because you're you, you might apply to ten or fifteen jobs a day, but I'm um, you don't even get a call back or anybody reviewing your resume, and it's just not possible because if there are 2,000 candidates and even 10% of them are qualified, that's 200 resumes before you. It's huge. It's huge, yeah. (laughs) Um, And so I I think I would uh, probably think about um, expanding network, uh, trying to to get somebody to recommend that my resume at least get considered, uh, as well as trying to get maybe uh, applying for jobs that have been recently posted. Uh, and expecting okay. more hits on that than ones that might have been open for a month or two. Um, okay. And uh, you know that in terms of the actual interviews, I think um, at least for me, and I, I imagine it's the same for a lot of other people. But you know, when you're doing work, right? You're, you're you're finishing your your thesis or you're um, 
even working at a, a company, you know, you, you're probably in this mode of spending a lot of time alone behind a computer screen. Um, and, and some of those social skills tend to atrophy, right? Um, and, you know, I think most yeah. good interviewers, people giving the interviews, I try to look past that. Um, but it probably wouldn't hurt to like brush up on some social skills before going into okay. the interviews. And I think that becomes even more true as you go up in the, uh, the career ladder. You know, if you're looking for a management position, um, you know, you definitely have to be on your, your game socially. Um, uh, and you probably shouldn't, you know, go right from like writing code into an interview. Kalen is making a great point about the importance of preparing the field before going into interviews. But before drilling down on how to prepare, I want to thank you for being a listener of the show. My goal with these conversations is to provide you with at least one actionable item, one take-home message you can apply to your career exploration. And hopefully you'll find many gold nuggets during this episode. I also want to bring you value by making improvements to the show. For example, for you who are new to the show, I have curated collections of episodes I call Starter Packs. You can find them at PapaPhD forward slash start and catch up on the conversations and easily find the ones that interest you. And I have big plans for the podcast in 2021, like improving the accessibility of each episode by having someone prepare and upload clean transcripts or like being able to better thank guests for their generosity with their time coming on the show. Bringing Papa PhD to you each week in its current format is a lot of hard work from finding and booking guests to late nights editing and preparing show notes. So to help keep the project afloat, I've created a Patreon page for Papa PhD. You can find it at PapaPhD forward slash Patreon. To be clear, listening to Papa PhD is free and always will be. But for you who want to help me maintain the quality of the show and potentially bring to life some of the cool projects I have for it, you now have a simple way to do so. Either way, I'm grateful for having you as a listener. And now, let's get back to my conversation with Kalen Kovach Orr. What you said just made me think about the whole uh, uh, concept of informational interviews. Because I, when you have spent all this time behind the screen, and we're recording this during the COVID pandemic, so people are even more <laughs> secluded than than usual, and I guess there's interviews happening on Zoom. That that must be a current practice today. But um, one thing that that I've that I've heard, and I'd like to I'd like your take on that, is uh, to in an effort of networking, but also of kind of practicing, uh, you know, talking about the the subject that interests you. Uh, is the idea of uh, getting to talk with people who work in the domain that you're looking into uh, and and have what what we call an informational interview with them is this something that you've seen you've done uh, that is this something you'd recommend i uh, yeah that i i would highly recommend that uh, i had completely forgotten about this aspect of um interview prep but yeah i i had um leaned on uh, family connections, uh, friends from college who had, had gone into uh, you know, software engineering or related fields uh, prior, you know, post finishing my PhD and prior to, to working and, and just kind of practice talking through and just, you know, uh, 
figuring out what people care about and, and what people are, are bored by. Because, uh, you know, that can always be a challenge with data science. The last point, and, and maybe this is something that I learned a little bit later, but I think it's really important, uh, is to really let go of ego in this process, because you go through and, and you probably had a very successful undergrad and, and master's and, and you know, you finish your PhD and, you know, you might be thinking like, oh, I could be a manager or I could be a director or I could be a, a senior data scientist. Um, and I think it's really important to let go of that type of ego because it, it does raise some flags for people who are hosting the interview. Um, and the most important part is, is getting in the door and then proving your value once you're at a company. And, you know, I, I think I came in as a, an individual contributor. I spent a couple of years there. You know, it, it was, it, it felt um, like, you know, you're always eyeing the next promotion and whatnot. Um, but it, it does happen. It just, you know, it takes time like anything else. Um, and so one thing we see with a lot of uh, PhDs is, you know, maybe they have a PhD in biology like myself or a PhD in psychology and they want to come in and, or, you know, maybe they're chemical engineering and they want to come in and, and, and have a job that is like their final career job, right? They want to be director <laughs> of data science and they've, mm-hmm. you know, only had limited experience or, and definitely no experience like managing managers or anything like that. So, mm. you know, keep the, uh, keep the, the target uh, within reach, I think is a good way to go. Yeah, stay humble. Uh, just think about it. If, if imagine, even if you end up getting a tenure track professorship, you will have to be a postdoc for a while before before then. So it's kind of the same thing on the other side of the fence. And uh, it's really interesting that you mentioned this because it's been mentioned to me by other people, which is start. You know, cut 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 your uh, uh, cut back a little bit on your ambition. Like keep it there, but in the in the back burner. Prove yourself, and then. With with all the, the the baggage you have, the work ethic you have, quickly then you'll be able to to evolve within a company or even you know be it vertically or laterally uh, in a company. But have that humility of saying, I am not, you know, I don't have real world experience in this domain. Let's start from from the the newsroom. Like, I don't know how they from the the mail room, right. right? And then and then go and then go up. It's it's really really it's a really really important point that that Kalen is just sharing, and I just wanted to to uh, underline it and and to because an attitude that's too um, ambitious ambitious can come out can come off as being arrogant, and then you will not have that position. Yeah, exactly, and. I think this is something uh, also worth noting here. Um, and it's something that I was completely blind to as a, a graduate student. Uh, and that's that uh, moving up the corporate ladder is not about who's the best. It's just not. It's about who can help the most people, right? So you don't get that manager, directorship, or VP position because you're the smartest person in the room. You get it because... Uh, you will be able to help the people who report into you and the people that you report to the most in that position. Um, and so there's almost no room for ego. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think especially coming out of academia, some of the maybe more famous professors, uh, department chairs and, and uh, you know, like Canada research chairs tend not to be the most humble people all the time. And so you mm-hmm. might think that that's the pathway to success, <laughs> but um you know, I, I don't think it is in in the modern workplace. Mm-hmm. And and 
one of the the other things is once if once you've understood this and uh, and, and you've understood that you're going to go into an organization well where you'll have to learn a lot well you'll have to learn a lot which means that people within the organization will have to interact with you and teach you things and you want to you want them to to have that be a pleasant experience, you know, and if you again come off as I know everything, I don't need, uh, you know, I, you know, I've reached the top of the <laughs> of the chain of of knowledge, then you're you're missing that opportunity completely, and most certainly you won't go past that first interview because people need someone who'll integrate with a team and, like you said, work collaboratively and. And make the whole team move forward. No, it's it's a really really important point, and it's not often that it's that it's talked about. I'm really really grateful that you that you mentioned that. Oh, thank you. Uh, now, now, my quest, my next question would be more like to do with um, because you mentioned en passant, you mentioned something which which was I didn't really start networking or trying to contact people in the industry until almost the end of, of my PhD. Would you advise people to, even though there's still one, you know, two, three years to go to start or, already uh, or, or waiting, waiting until the end is, is okay too? I, I would say um, aim to start out around uh, 12 to 15 months out from when you'll have your diploma. I'm, you know, it, it's always weird with a PhD because you submit and then you defend and then you, <laughs> then you walk. Uh, most places don't want to hire you. And at least I, in my experience, they don't want to hire you until you actually have the diploma in hand, mm -hmm. uh, especially if you have any um, type of visa or international um, thing going on. And then, yeah. um, I, you know, if you start three years out, the, the you know, you, you might wind up connecting with people who are not going to be at that company any longer, or maybe they're interested in technologies that aren't going to be relevant by the time mm -hmm. you graduate, um, you know, or, or problems that aren't going to be relevant anymore. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, you, you also don't want to flood the market with, uh, you know, too many connections and just, you know, have 8,000 LinkedIn connections because then you just <laughs> start getting rejected. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd say 12 to 15 months out. Um, yeah, I had a, the other day I was at uh, the hardware store picking up a, okay. a, my sink started to leak. Um, and I was wearing a Google Cloud hat. And the cashier, uh, you know, was, uh, asked me if I was in data science. He's, he's just graduating <laughs> now. Uh, and, you know, I, I told him the whole thing. Uh, it turns out he's a McGill comp sci student who uh graduated <laughs> so funny. uh he was going to graduate in may so, you know i gave him my card and told him to contact me when he's uh he's gonna you know be able to start working and, and i think that's mm -hmm. about the right timing you know mm -hmm. so so for sure start working on your let's say portfolio way ahead mm -hmm. uh like more more like one one year two years before but but Thinking about networking more closer to the the last year, it it, it does make sense, uh, and and like you said, there's a question of of uh, of the 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 context still being pertinent to the reality of of today in the industry that you're looking at for sure, and um, and uh, yeah, and also the fact that people who are hiring 
do want do are looking for people that are finishing or that have that have just finished it, it totally totally makes sense um now so how did you go about so by the end of your phd you you now knew that that's what you wanted to do how did you go about uh have, having those first contacts and and you know getting to that first position i'm um, so i applied to hundreds of jobs um got a couple interviews i'm a lot of a lot of startups uh gave me callbacks okay. uh but the, you know they they were pretty undeveloped uh and then i got two offers um both through uh you know networked connections i um, okay. you know it, it happened the the position i took with Barisk, uh it happened that somebody else had accepted the job offer and then um had to uh, turn it down at the last minute. And so they were scrambling mm -hmm. to find somebody for this position before the fiscal year ran out. Um, mm -hmm. And so I got streamlined into, it was something like 11 or 12 interviews uh, oh, wow. over the course of like a week or two. Uh, yeah, it, it was a, a big... That's a lot of interviews. It was. Um, <laughs> and, it, you know, I'd say that that hasn't changed too much in the industry. Uh, it's pretty common to go through a... a a large number of interviews, uh, especially if you're trying to get um, a, a job in like a, a startup or someplace where people, you know, are doing research and development. Um, they, mm -hmm. they really want to make sure their investment in you is, is worth it. Um, and so, you know, it wound up being a lot of luck and, uh, you know, I'm not sure privilege is the right word here, but, but probably in that, you know, these were people who recommended me for the job and then there wound up being, um, you know, an opening. I, so I think it's important to keep with it. And, and, you know, if you don't have that network, it's probably a good idea to reach out to alumni or, or friends uh, who may mm -hmm. have gone into it or, uh, you know, even uh, if you can just get your name onto the interview pile or the, um, the review pile that, that can go a long way. Mm -hmm. and, and um so now that i'm curious of course you know you mentioned 11 interviews can you just give the listeners a, a kind of a, a thirty thousand feet view of what that looks like what you know what's happening in, not maybe not in each of them but what are the different hurdles that that they want you to to uh, um yeah to pass at, at different at, at each step until you finally get the yes yeah so there's um there was like a an HR interview to uh, just confirm uh, work eligibility and salary expectations, which is always a difficult conversation when you're a grad student. Um, yeah. <laughs> and then there's, uh, there were some, so uh, let's see, there was a, a homework problem uh, where okay. they, you know, they sent me a, a statistical, uh, something, you know, empty cars, if you know that R package or, no. It's a data set from the 70s trying to figure out miles per gallon and fuel efficiency. <laughs> um, and so did that, uh, submitted the, the homework assignment. Uh, then I had an interview to talk about the homework assignment, uh, some mm. interviews uh, for with technical people, an interview with some people testing soft skills, and then a final interview where I presented one of the chapters from my PhD uh, okay. oh, wow. as a research okay. program. Uh, I, as a research problem. I, I will say that um, the, 
the position I was going for was on a research and development team uh, specifically. So, you know, I think the interview process is probably a little bit more intense than mm-hmm. something in, in more prescriptive work. Um, and, you know, even to this day, our interviews are, are maybe half as intense as what I just mentioned, but um, okay. <laughs> they're, they're still pretty intense, right? We have a hacker rank assignment. We've got uh, a panel discussion, a couple interviews with HR, with the hiring manager, and then finally with the, the VP who signs off. Mm. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. So so I imagine, like you said, preparing, uh, there, you know, to some extent you can prepare, you can uh, uh, you can practice with someone, but there's a lot of the the, the interview process that is unknown and that you learn just the day that the, right. <laughs> that you're there. Um, what would help people out there? Are there ways to, oh, even though you can you cannot prepare for the specific thing that's going to happen at the specific uh, this specific interview? Are there exercises, uh, websites, uh, places, or, or resources that that you you uh, advise people should? read through or take part in to start getting kind of the hang of what these types of, uh, of demands or exercises may be? Uh, yeah. So, you know, uh, definitely practicing your elevators pitch, um, having some uh, sense about what the company does, maybe look up, once you get your schedule, look up your interviewees on LinkedIn or whatever you can. Um, that can go a long way. I remember distinctly reading the research papers from, uh, the team that hired me before the interviews. And I, I think that helped a lot. Um, in terms of like general questions, you know, th- I think there's a lot of resources out there. Um, there, when they, it comes to the hard skills, it's not something you can really prepare for mm-hmm. if you, you know, it's, you kind of have to have them already, but the soft mm-hmm. skills, they're probably testing for, you know, how you get along with the team. Uh, uh, you know, are you going to, uh, have um, ego issues. Uh, you're going to cause problems. Those kind of things, and it's it's probably more of a uh, a check for red flags than it is a this person is the most fun person ever. <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah. So, and you mentioned just before because we're getting, we're reaching the end of the interview, but you just mentioned really quickly the difficulty of the salary talk. Uh, and and I remember I had this issue, and I remember the, in the company that I that I worked with when I finished my PhD, people coming in had you know the, the, it was it's it's hard it's it's difficult to know because you're coming from grad school where your time is really not valued at least in in monetary <laughs> in a monetary aspect. Uh, do you have any you know, tips for people to kind of prepare? I think you mentioned uh, not I think you mentioned one thing that I that I think is very important which is uh, uh, humility uh, to to a certain extent but then you still want to know kind of what ballpark you know people might be expecting or or, or what ballpark might be okay when you go to an interview and um yeah i'd, I'd like to just to, to know if you have any advice on that um yeah so let me think about how to say this um you're probably more likely to um, get rejected for an offer for putting um, a too high of a salary ask than you are to um, get underpaid uh, by putting too low of a, a mark, right? Um, it may 
in fact, help you to put a lower mark in terms of getting an offer. You know, if you if I have two candidates and they're the same and one's going to wants 20% more than the other, mm-hmm. I probably go with the one who um, wants less money. But it's also, I mean, at least for my company, and, and I can't speak for other ones, um, we're, we're not looking to go out and, and um, take advantage of people. So if somebody says they want uh, $40,000 a year and the position was earmarked to pay between uh, you know, 90 and 100 and they're a great candidate, we're not going to offer them 40. That would be insane, right? Uh, we, you know, we're looking for sustainable hires, people who want to stick around for a long time. And so you want to put them in a place where uh, they're not going to want to leave after 18 months of experience and just go somewhere mm-hmm. else for you know, two and a half or three times what they were mm-hmm. getting paid from <laughs> you because you took advantage. Um, and so hopefully anywhere you work, uh, the people who are in charge are not looking to take advantage of the employees. Um, and you know, if, if they are, it's probably not the right place to go, but you know, you can do market research on Glassdoor. Uh, if you can, um, find out anything about their promotions and raises that could probably also go a long way. So some companies limit, you know, you can't get more than 10% a year or something like that. Um, okay. so then you'd want to be more aggressive in your upfront costs or your upfront price. Uh, whereas, you know, if a company says, um, you know, your, your pay will scale with your quality, then, you know, really it's about getting the offer and then proving your value. And so maybe you lose mm-hmm. out on six months or a year of what you could have made, but long-term you're making a lot more money. Good. Yeah, no, I think you, I think you, you covered it and it's, it's, it, it makes a lot of sense. So, so some, some humility not uh not don't think that you're gonna just be like savagely uh, taken advantage of it's not but but uh yeah uh, be sure that if you over ask you you will be uh relegated to you know you you won't you probably will not be chosen because there's there's brackets that that the company is looking for that's what i understand yeah exactly not and then not just brackets um but you know if let's say I've got $100,000 to pay somebody with, right? And they want 120, right? I could probably go out and get that extra $20,000, but that same mm-hmm. person is not going to be happy in a year and a half or two years when they get uh, their, that raise and it's 1%, right? They, yeah. you know, we're already paying them the bottom of what they wanted. And so they're just not going to stick around. And so they're not a good hire. Excellent. Well, uh, Kalen, sadly, our time is over. This was this has been a great conversation, and this talk of of pay is, is one that I haven't had yet on the podcast, and I'm really happy again that that uh, that we were able to talk about that because it's very sensitive. It's it's it can be nerve wracking, and uh, and people can feel very lost uh, in this in those first uh, first interviews for for the first position. So I think you you put a very balanced uh, uh, picture of of what things are kind of what to expect and, and what attitude to have. So, uh, yeah, I really, really appreciate that. Um, Kalen, uh, now that we're, that we're really reaching the end, uh, I'd like you to, to maybe share, um, you know, one or two pieces of advice. People are now at home. You know, COVID is keeping most of, of people, especially people in, in wet labs, you know, away from their experiments. Uh, are there uh, any words of, uh, I don't know, um, of uh, you know, courage and uh, and maybe uh, advice to uh, on the side of you know working on the networking now that they're at home something something like that for the listeners out there. So 
I think the, the whole world has changed on this front. You know, um, there just aren't the same opportunities to network as there were a, a year ago. Um, and so, you know, uh, some things I've seen uh, are, are people kind of stepping up LinkedIn networking, uh, finding mm-hmm. friends of friends, uh, just, you know, having a, a conversation and doing so in a uh, light to medium level, right? You don't want to overwhelm yeah. somebody you don't know with questions and whatnot. But um, of course. yeah, I, it's it's got to be really difficult. I'd probably lean heavily on alumni networks. Uh, if I were trying to graduate now uh, and try to find a job, uh, friends of friends and their friends, you know, any, anything you can really do, um, you know, it, and you could probably use it even to your advantage in that I'm sure, uh, you know, universities are holding these networking events and uh, there probably isn't a ton of attendance. And, and one of the things that has helped me in the past is that the more I you know, interview or the more I talk to people about a topic, the more comfortable I am and the better it it comes off. Mm. And so maybe, you know, just putting a low investment into each one or emotional investment into each one, but doing a lot of these events could be really beneficial to, uh, you know, prospective hires um, Mm. in that they could talk to a lot of different people and kind of brush up their game. Um, But I, I do feel for all the people who are currently in grad school and trying to find jobs because it must be very difficult. Yeah, no, it, it is. And uh, hopefully hopefully this eventually subsides. It's, it doesn't look like it right now, but, you know, the, somehow things have to, to move on and, and, and to resume to a certain extent, but it's, it's just not in the horizon when we look right now. Um, yeah, Kaelin, I, I really appreciated talking with you. And uh, I imagine that... Uh, People who are listening might want to reach out to you. Do you want to share? Do you have uh, uh, any uh, anything to share about first? Uh, you know, yeah, how to reach out to you, and maybe also uh, about about various. You know, where if people are curious about what the company does, uh, where they can find this information. Yeah, um, I'd love to uh, connect with people who who found this conversation interesting or have comments or, or questions or whatever. Um, they can reach me on LinkedIn. Um, so I, I presume my link is, is on the website. Uh, it's going to be in the show notes. Yeah. My name is a little bit complicated to spell, so I won't uh, go through that right now. Uh, but definitely uh, check out the show notes. Uh, and it's just if you search Google for my name, I am the only one in the world. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> for sure. That is that's great. Have you have you reserved your dot com? <laughs> no, I you know, honestly, I'd have to then tell people to go to my name dot com and that's Alan Kovach or that's too much. Um, uh, and as far as uh, what Varys does, uh, we're a, a multinational corporation. Um, we're in, I think, 37 different countries and uh, we work on property and casualty insurance. So this is things like mm-hmm. automobile and homeowners and um business liability. Uh, we don't get involved in health or life, really. Um, and we're not involved in selling insurance. What we do is we build the analytics to help insurers price risk. So um, you know, I built out a product that uh, faces or should face when it's fully implemented uh, about 40% of the commercial auto market and help them figure out which vehicle features will uh, drive uh, insurance risk and, you know, how likely okay. you are to get into an accident. And, you know, it's, it's simple things like, um, 
how big of an engine, horsepower, torque, um, and some less simple things I won't get into for IP reasons. <laughs> um, and we do a lot uh, in, in different areas. In Canada, we've got some um, energy risk uh, offices, uh, Wood Mackenzie. They're focused on um, risk in logging and mining activities, so uh, you know, environmental impact. Uh, some of our offices in Boston will work with NASA on, um, you know, uh, like it's it derived from, they, they were the experts in hurricane modeling. Okay. Uh, and now they work with NASA on things like the Mars probe to predict weather and, and oh. where they should put down <laughs> uh, rovers and, and all sorts of cool stuff like that. Uh, so we have our hands on a lot of different things. It's, it's a, it's a good company to work for. Um, I think we treat our employees well and, uh, there's lots of research and development opportunities. Uh, I think we have two to 400 data scientists now and a lot of oh. other people in R and D that aren't technically data scientists. Okay. Well, this is, this sounds very, very interesting. And again, it's really cool to see how diversified, you know, the same kind of, uh, you know, the same company can be in terms of what problem they're trying to solve, but that the, the brains behind it ended up, end up having to be, to be doing the same job of looking at a problem and finding finding solutions for a specific uh, objective like Mars who who would <laughs> like predicting weather on Mars I wouldn't have imagined that for sure. <laughs> uh Kaylin, thanks a lot for your time. It, it, this was a great conversation. Um and I think uh be it for people interested in data science or not, you know, we talked about things that I think apply for anyone who's doing a PhD and thinking about their career after. So so yeah, I just wanted to to thank you. Oh, yeah, I'm happy to have uh, been invited, and this is a really fun conversation. So thank you. And that's it for this week's episode. If you want to reach out to Kalen or thank him for all he shared during this interview, follow the link in the show notes. You'll find them at PapaPhD forward slash 98. And be sure to follow PapaPhD on Twitter and Instagram at podcast, and also on Facebook and LinkedIn. And now it's time for this week's and now it's time for this week's podcast discovery segment with Planthropology and Dear Grad Student. Do you love plants? Don't be silly. Of course you do. You might just not know it yet. I'm Vikram Baliga, the host of the Planthropology Podcast, the show where we dive into the lives and careers of some really cool plant people. Join me each episode as I chat with students, scientists, and professionals in the natural sciences and figure out what keeps them coming back for more. We'll explore their work, the ways they got into their fields, why they love plants and nature so much, and why you should love those things too. Planthropology is laid back and conversational and will keep you laughing and engaged whether you're a scientist or not. Follow along for this adventure into the sciences and keep being really cool plant people. Hi, I'm Alana, and I'm a fourth-year PhD student. I'm more than likely re-editing that manuscript for the 22nd time, or maybe I'm in my fourth Zoom meeting today. Who can tell? But mostly, I'm probably working on my podcast. It's called Dear Grad Student, and it's a podcast for grad students to celebrate, commiserate, and support one another through grad school. Each week, I interview other grad students and academics about their experience from imposter syndrome, psychom, dealing with mentors, racism in academia, or, you know, all the other joys that come along with grad school. Not a grad student? Maybe you're thinking about grad school. 
Maybe you just finished and you really want to reminisce about the painfully glorious days. Either way, I think you should come check it out. You can find the podcast at deargradstudent.buzzsprout.com, twitter.com slash deargradstudent, or on your favorite podcast app. New episodes are posted every Monday. And until next time, warmest regards, best wishes, sincerely, Alana. And that's it for today. Thanks for being a listener. Happy listening and happy sharing. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Papa PhD podcast. Head over to papaphd.com for show notes and for more food for thought about non-academic postgrad careers. I'll always be happy to share inspiring stories, new ideas and useful resources here on the podcast. So make sure you subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts to always keep up with the discussion and to hear from our latest guests.